0: Welcome to the Living Leadership Podcast. This year's series is titled Growing Our Capacity to Lead. Through this podcast, we will work to make leadership tangible. We will try to take what some might see as subjective and make it objective. We'll let you hear conversations between master leaders and emerging leaders in ways that promote effective practices leading to desirable outcomes. Our goal is simple. After each podcast, we hope you have one idea, one practice or one new leadership tool that you can implement immediately. Welcome to Living Leadership. Episode one, why intentional leadership choices matter. Do you have questions of the ages that you often consider? I do. I think about things like the Kennedy assassination. What in the world actually happened there? Don't you wish we knew? I know they opened up some of the files recently, but even many of those were still redacted. Don't you just wish you know who did it and why? Or I think about all of this talk in the last couple of years about aliens. What are those naval pilots actually filming down there near the ocean? What about these people in the military who said that they've seen actual evidence of extraterrestrial experiences on this planet? Is any of that real? Is any of that true? Don't you wish that we knew why all of this was happening? What's the point? Why is this going on? Here's one that's a little closer to home for me. My daughter and I have talked ever since she was little about the Titanic. We've been to the Titanic Museum in uh, Florida. We, We love talking about the Titanic. I have a really important foundational question, though. Why was the Titanic going so fast? It was going 22 knots. We had telegraphs at the time. They had seven specific iceberg warnings. Why on earth were they going so fast that every expert in the world agrees there's no way they could have possibly stopped in time had they encountered an iceberg? Simon Sinek talks about starting with why. It's a good book. You should read it. Not only do I hope that we can help you find your why when it comes to leadership, But this very first podcast is going to hopefully give you an introduction to me and the why that I have for this podcast. What's driving me to do this? To start, I think we have to talk about a little bit of context. So first of all, I'm Dr. Jeff Borden. I'm the dean of a school that studies, teaches, and promotes leadership effectiveness from soup to nuts, top to bottom. In other words, I am the formal positional leader of a school of leaders. Wow. Talk about intimidating. Yes. (laughs) So I get the question a lot. What is my style of leadership? What kind of leadership does my school promote? How do I live out leadership in my day-to-day experiences? And these are super fair questions. I mean, after all, there's a dozen, two dozen, three dozen leadership styles, strategies, methods. There's no shortage of opinions about leadership. Just go look at an airport bookshelf and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Lots and lots of people have lots of opinions about what should or shouldn't be leadership. Uh, Just do a quick Google search if you really wanna see it fast. You'll find democratic leadership, autocratic leadership, bureaucratic leadership, adaptive, collaborative, authoritarian, coaching, transformational, affiliative, delegative, participative, and the list goes on. Chat GPT, not any more help. It suggests that there are 17 leadership styles. Bing, uh, their recommendation for how to search better would be to say, what are the big five leadership styles? Or what are the seven types of leadership? Or what are the top eight leadership strategies? Look, I get it. There's a lot to unpack when it comes to leadership. But before I discuss uh, my personal leadership strategies and methods, let me discuss what our school promotes. So Gonzaga, as most of you probably know, is a Jesuit university. Now, that means that most people assume things about our curriculum and and what we teach. And I think it's fair to say most people affiliate Gonzaga University School of Leadership Studies with servant leadership. But I would actually argue that our faculty, who are typically also practitioners, and that's important, they would see adaptive leadership as our real forte. Now there's a couple of reasons for that. First of all, when it comes to servant leadership, as powerful and amazing as that can be in practice, we do know that there are some people who simply can't get past the semantics of the phrase or the of, of the concept. Some people make very deep assumptions about the definitional meaning of the word servant. There are swaths of people on our planet Who have felt that they were in a servant role most of their lives, and they don't want to take that into leadership roles or positions. And that's understandable. And while I think that there's more to unpack in regard to what servant leadership actually is, if somebody simply can't get past the terminology, fair enough. We need to start someplace else. And I think that that place to start is in adaptive leadership. Adaptive leadership suggests that leadership encounters or experiences are not always the same. There's no one size fits all to leadership. A good leader is flexible. A good leader is adaptive. A good leader can go into various contexts with various teams, with different kinds of people, with different goals, with different sets of outcomes. And they can lead effectively because they have been malleable and flexible. They have looked at the situation and determined the best leadership styles, attributes, tools, protocols to use in that context. That's what adaptive leadership really is all about. So I would argue that our school approaches leadership from an adaptive framework, generally speaking, which gives then a gateway into all of those different leadership styles, types, and strategies that I talked about before, and more, by the way. (laughs) So to better understand my take on leadership, well, you're probably going to need to understand my background. I am an expert around exactly three things. There are three things that I have studied, I have practiced, I have researched, I have worked with, I've collaborated on. I have done this for two and a half decades, providing leadership in and around these three things throughout the entirety of my career. Those three things are education, innovation, and communication. Now, you're probably wondering what that means. Unfortunately, all three of those things that I just suggested are three things that most people believe you just have or you don't have. You're just good at it. Or you're not good at it. Or unfortunately, most people think they are good at it. And that's unfortunately just not true. But let me tell you what that means in my world. If you were to Google my name or go onto YouTube and put in Jeff Borden, you would find a healthy number of recorded presentations. I have given keynotes around education, around innovation, uh, 250, 260 times in my career where I have had an audience of somewhere between 75 and 10,000 that I have been speaking to about these important subjects, the ins and outs of what it is to learn, what it is to scale education, what innovation actually means, the cultural ramifications of that, the change management ramifications of that, how we actually should think about semiotics and nonverbals and all sorts of things. What's important to me though, is not that I have been invited to give keynotes that many times in 25 years, but how often I've been invited back. Audiences seem to really resonate with some of the concepts that I bring to them. They find new information that's presented in sometimes ways they describe back to me as being fresh and modern. But at the same time, uh, I really try very hard to make sure that it's information that you can do something with. Now, It's not just about the presentations I've given. You can look at my teaching history. I have never stopped teaching since I got my master's degree in 1997 at the University of Northern Colorado. I have taught somewhere ever since, whether it was an adjunct capacity or in a full-time capacity, I've taught in, in different frames. I have taught public speaking. I've taught interpersonal communication. I've taught intercultural communication. I've taught small group. I've taught org com. I've taught rhetoric, but I've also taught on the education side. I've taught classroom management. I've taught curriculum. I've taught about basically how to take the things we know about brain science, neuroscience, learning science, and actually apply them in classrooms at scale. While I've done all of that in the classroom, I've also been researching and writing. I've got articles, chapters, and books about issues that are relevant to leadership, to senior leaders across higher education, by which to hopefully start to transform what we do. I've presented to Congress. I've sat across the table from the secretary of education. I have provided persuasion coaching for uh, groups of district attorneys. I've attended innovation boot camps and summer institutes. I've traveled the globe. There was a one time in my life over about five years, I, I visited 44 different countries talking to provosts, presidents, ministers of education, principals about how we scale intentional learning and e-learning. I've been a chief innovation officer. I've been a vice provost. I've been a dean. I've been a faculty member. At the same time, outside of the higher ed context, I've been a chief academic officer for three ed tech companies, one startup. I've worked with learning management system companies. I've worked with digital campus companies. This has really allowed me to see both instruction and innovation initiatives, as well as general learning principles in thousands of courses and contexts. I have provided feedback, consultation, help for practitioners in every stream that I have described to you here. I have really led dozens of leadership workshops for senior executives from NPR to IBM to the association for talent development. So in both the commercial world and the academic world, I have really, really tried to employ leadership components to those three things, education, innovation, and communication. In other words, I've studied, I've researched, I have practiced, I have promoted leadership across my fields of expertise. I'm conversant in most leadership nomenclature, I've got a working knowledge of most of the experts in the field, both academic and non-academic, and almost every session or presentation that I have given in those 20 years includes some aspect of leadership. So I know Eisenhower said that leadership is really about getting people to do things they don't want to do. Klein says that leadership is more synonymous with change management than with anything else. Sheryl Sandberg, the COO of Facebook, says leadership is about making others better as a result of your presence while making sure that the impact lasts in your absence. Bennis, a pioneer in leadership studies, says that it's about the capacity to translate vision into reality. John Maxwell defines leadership as influence, hard stop, period. (laughs) Simon Sinek who's really popular right now on YouTube and social media, he says that it's about acting, communicating, and thinking in ways that inspires others. Kind of taking away the notion of the formal leader and really putting in just leadership principles. Peter Drucker, the famous consultant, said that leadership was the lifting of a people's vision to higher sites, the raising of people's performance to a higher standard, the building of a people's personality beyond its normal limitations. I know about that quote. I also know that I changed the word man's to people. (laughs) He came from a different time. Brene Brown says that a leader is anyone who takes responsibility for finding the potential in people and processes and having the courage to develop that potential. I have a working knowledge of how people think about leadership. But if you get closer to my areas of research and interest, You would find quotes from people like Jeff Dyer, who wrote The Innovator's DNA, who suggests that top innovation companies have leaders who innovate versus just creating a space for innovation like most leaders do, but that only 15% of those organizations see such leaders. Or perhaps education context from Parker Palmer, who wrote, leadership is a concept we often resist. It seems immodest, even self-aggrandizing, to think of ourselves as leaders. But if it is true that we are made for community, then leadership is everyone's vocation. He goes on to say, but modesty is only one reason we resist the idea of leadership. Cynicism about our most visible leaders is the other. In America, at least, our declining public life has bred too many self-serving leaders who seem lacking in ethics, compassion, and vision he wrote that so long ago, but how true is that today? Now, I give you my background there to try and make two really important points. First off, I really don't like the question of whether I'm an expert in leadership. As you've just heard, there are dozens, if not hundreds of areas of leadership that one can study, and any one of those could be studied throughout an entirety of a lifetime. So while most would say that Simon Sinek or Brene Brown or Parker Palmer are experts in leadership, I suspect that as true experts, they would realize that they know far less than they do know more. (laughs) Keep in mind the availability heuristic, that form of confirmation bias that explains how the most ignorant draw incorrect conclusions way too fast and assume them to be right. Experts don't do that. But second, It's important to hold two juxtaposed conditions in your mind. Now, lucky for us, this is a major separator of humans from animals. We can both love and hate something. We can both find beauty and ugliness in a person. Uh, We can acknowledge that a person can have expertise in something like leadership without having practiced every aspect of leadership. We can hold those two things together. And so I want to give you. Uh, the juxtaposition that I'm trying to walk in between for this podcast. Let me try to illustrate the first part of the juxtaposition with a uh, with a story. If you've ever heard of Doug Blevins, as a child, Doug was obsessed with uh, American football, specifically with one aspect of football. He loved kicking. He really, really loved watching kickers and punters. He spent almost all of his hours, starting at the time when he was a child, studying kickers and punters. He believed that there was a place in the sport for a person who just understood kickers and punters as much as he did. He looked at the, the angle of their feet, the angle of the ball, the way that the snap came out. He really studied kicking and punting. By the time he got to high school, since, you know, kicking was not really part of the Sandlot football game, Uh, he finally had a chance to try to use some of his information. He actually volunteered at his high school to try to help the kickers kick better uh, in the school. And it it worked. They had an amazing season in terms of kicking. In fact, he did so well, it got noticed by a local college team who then recruited him to help them with their kicking game. And again, they had some of the best kicking in the entire league. Now, while all of this is going on, Doug Blevins kept writing to the NFL. He was asking NFL coaches for all the advice that they would give him. Ironically, only one replied, the Dallas Cowboys coach, Tom Landry. For those of you that know the football world, Tom was described by many as being one of the classiest acts in the history of the NFL. But Landry actually did reply to Blevins, and he sent stacks of plays and books and notes from his coaching staff. Blevins absorbed it like a sponge. He took it all in. Eventually... Um, using that information to really hone what he was doing in the college he was working with, but really to al- to also get a shot at working with an NFL team. And the Miami Dolphins became that team. They took a chance on, on Doug Blevins, who started to teach their kickers how to kick better. And they got better and they got better and they got better, which led Doug to a, a, a trial run with the New York Jets. And again, they got better. And eventually he landed with the New England Patriots. Ironically, at the same time that this was going on, as he got to the Patriots, there was a kicker named Adam Vinatieri who really couldn't get a shot in the NFL. He was getting no offers after he left South Dakota State, but he really believed he could be a kicker in the NFL. So he kept sending his tapes to Blevins. And just like Blevins had barraged the NFL with uh, with questions and queries, Basically, Vinatieri did the same to him. Eventually, he wore him down. Blevins took a look at the tape, and he saw something that he thought was potential. He thought that Vinatieri might have something. So he invited Adam Vinatieri to come to his home. And for the next year, they worked out at a local high school, and they finally got to a place where the budding kicking star perfected his form. Doug Blevins got him to a place where he felt like this should be the new kicker for the New England Patriots, and he effectively made that happen. The rest is history for any of you who know about Adam Vinatieri and uh, his work with the New England Patriots. He kicked the winning field goal for the Patriots in the 2002 Super Bowl. He set records for consistency, for accuracy, for tons of different things throughout his very long career, all thanks to Doug Blevins. Now, some of you may be ahead of me, and you may be thinking to yourself, okay, Doug Blevins was a teacher who didn't actually, wasn't actually a kicker. And yeah, you're right. that that is, that is true. But there's actually a little bit more to it. Here's what you don't know. Doug Blevins, the successful kicking coach for high schools, colleges, and the NFL, had cerebral palsy. He has been in a wheelchair since he was seven years old. He has never kicked a football in his life. So... As you start to take that in, it's important to realize you don't have to have been a practitioner of every aspect of anything in order to be an expert trainer or teacher. But as I noted, I'm walking a line between two conflicting concepts that really are important here. That first one that I just described is because I haven't lived out every style of leadership Just like because you haven't experienced or seen every style or type or strategy of leadership, that doesn't mean we shouldn't have discussions about it. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try to tie it to things we do know about leadership that can help drive us forward. And that's one of the things we hope to do in this podcast. But the second idea that really butts up against that first one is also illustrated probably by a story. I'll apologize for having two sports stories in one talk. I don't usually do that. But let me tell you a little bit about Ralph Goldall. Bobby Jones, who up until the time of Jack Nicklaus and uh, Tiger Woods, was considered the best golfer of all time. Interestingly, he was asked by a writer near the end of his career, what's it like to be the best golfer in the world? And he said something interesting. His response was, I don't know. Ask Ralph Goldall. Now, you may not have ever heard of Ralph Goldall. Most people haven't. Interestingly, in 1931, so you have to go all the way back to the 30s. In 31, he won a major at 20. That was a record that would not be broken until 2013, by the way, winning a, a golf major at the age of 20. He took second in 33 at the US Open. Between 1934 and 1938, though, he won more majors than anyone in history. In fact, uh, if, if you look at just that entire period of time, he is arguably the best golfer that's ever existed for a five year period, give or take. Now, something that's interesting about Ralph Goldall is he wasn't like the other golfers. See, Ralph wasn't raised in a country club setting, he didn't have the proverbial silver spoon. He was poor. In fact, his father was a caddy and then he became a caddy when he was in high school and he would use that opportunity to get extra clubs that people were getting rid of to try to practice on the, on the links. Whenever he had the ability to do that, he would try to pick up little tidbits from some of the, the coaches that were coaching this, the, the members of the club. And he basically was entirely self-taught. So this kid who grew up without the, the richness that was associated with golf, especially at that time, really figured out how to play golf on his own and started winning. He was excellent. And then something really interesting happened that is probably the reason that you don't know about Ralph Goldall. In 1939, Goldall was asked to write a book to try to help other quote unquote common people how to play. And so he thought that was pretty clever to teach the common man how to play this sport that was seen as something that was only for the rich. And so for the first time in his life, he started to diagnose his swing. He tried to deconstruct his putt. He started thinking about how the ball came off of the wood and why that happened and how that happened and the speed of his arms. He thought about things he'd never thought about before, and he wasn't sure what to make of it. It was hard for him to write the book. He struggled to, to get out the things he wanted to get out about the book because he'd never really understood why he did the things he did. He just did those things because it felt natural. And as a result, Ralph Goldall never won another major. In fact, he rarely won anything again, largely stopping playing for the rest of his life. He just played with friends on occasion and his family would argue that it was because he had taken what he could do and tried to teach it when he wasn't a teacher. The notion that a subject matter expert is inherently able to teach is unfortunately a foolish idea. It's a myth. Now, I realize I'm saying that as someone who lives and works in a higher education context because most of you probably know the dirty little secret of higher ed is that most college and university professors have no training in learning science, in the brain, in instructional design. Most have no idea how to teach. So they do what they have always done or what was done to or with them, they talk. That juxtaposition that I'm talking about would kind of be summed up like this. You don't have to be a practitioner to teach something like Doug Blevins but you do have to be a teacher, unlike Ralph Goldall. I'm not an expert in everything, but as I stated from the start, I know communication, I know innovation, and I know education. I have studied these things, I have practiced these things, I have worked collaboratively with these things. I have done this work for tens of thousands of hours. One of my least favorite defenses is when a a professor I'm talking to says something to me and starts it like this. I've been a professor for 30 years. So what? So how many students have you hurt in that time? (laughs) I want to know how you've adjusted, how you've tweaked, how you fixed bad practices through training, through development, through upskilling, through research. Equally, I don't really care if someone tells me that they've been a leader for years That doesn't mean that anyone has followed. That doesn't mean you've done it well. It just means that you've spent a lot of time doing something you think you're good at. So at the end of the day, that is what this podcast hopes to do. We hope to add to the library of great content that's out there. There's a lot of good stuff, but we wanna try to do it with things that work. I want to try to promote effective leadership practices through conversations between great leaders with proven track records. And we're going to bring in students who are hungry to learn about leadership. I want to provide a platform for experts to help novices pick up important tips and tools of the trade. I want to help you learn about applying principles and foundations of leadership to help your work, your organization, or your career. As I think about my specific style and what I'm trying to bring in right now, in terms of how I lead, I'm really trying to adapt. I'm trying to be flexible. I'm trying to bring in what I call polyarchical leadership. It's something that's discussed by Obolensky in complex adaptive leadership, but it's leadership that is performed by the many and it actually leans into chaos. I have got a school full of leaders. I hope you get to hear from some of them. These people know leadership. My job is to try to aim us, to angle us towards some things that are going to help us accomplish amazing feats, amazing outcomes, fantastic goals. But in terms of leadership, that's how I have to adapt if I want to work with these people who know leadership so well. That's what I hope that this podcast can also provide some notion of how to adapt in the moment when you need to based on the people, the context, the situation, the outcomes, the goals, whatever it might be. That's where I hope we get. I want to end with one story. If you've never heard of Jay Dilly, Jay Dilly was a fire marshal back in the early 1900s. Jay Dilly was uh, in charge of coal dockets. Now, if you don't know what a coal docket is, it's effectively a large pyramid of coal. And it's the kind of thing that they used to take the coal off of to stoke engines and fires, uh, fires in, inside of these big steam engines, stuff like that. And so um, Jay Dilly was in charge of what at that time was the largest set of coal dockets that had ever existed. One of Jay Dilly's firemen came up to him and said, uh, fire marshal Dilly, we're on fire. One of the coal dockets is on fire. We know that because we could see smoke rising up through the pyramid and there's somewhere underneath there is a fire. Well, if you know how fire works, you know that if they were to start trying to uncover that, that it would combust like a bomb. That that coal docket would just go up if they couldn't find a way to do it in a, a contained fashion. So Jay Dilly needed to make the trek up to his boss's office to explain what was going on. And so he climbed the metal stairs and went up into the crow's nest, where he saw Captain Smith, the captain of the Titanic. And he said to the captain, Captain, we're on fire. Captain Smith looked at him and said, you can't be serious. We're, we're not even a half day out of Ireland. We're, we, it's our maiden voyage. We've got to get across the Atlantic. And J. Dilly said, I'm sorry, sir. I don't know what to tell you. One of the coal dockets is on fire. So the captain looked at him and said, Can you and your firemen keep that, keep water on that coal docket for the entirety of our trip? And if I promise to get you across the Atlantic a day early, we will, we will really move it across the Atlantic. Can you keep it at bay and keep us from burning up? Jay Dilly said, I, I think so, sir. We'll certainly try. And so the decision made was made for all steam ahead. <laughs> See, when you know why, doesn't it make everything else just start to fall into place? Now, hopefully we'll have a better outcome than the Titanic did, (laughs) but I hope that you now start to understand why we're doing this podcast, why I'm doing this podcast, and hopefully what you'll get out of this podcast. We want to try to bring in some practical, tangible, applicable things so that we all have a better, easier way of deciding how we're going to grow our capacity to lead.